And we're going to think about one bald man, 42 boys, and boys are in quote, and, and two bears. So one bald man, 42 boys, and two bears. We also might call this a biblical passage seldom taught in junior church for some reasons. And I want to read from the King James Version. And on this occasion, uh, we do have a translation problem that tends to give a false impression about this passage. We'll work through that here in a minute. But uh, right now, let's just read the text as it stands. And you're one of the most famous, probably the, the greatest, historically, English translation of all time. And he, the prophet Elisha, went up from thence unto Bethel. And as he was going up, by the way, there came forth little children. Let's emphasize the term little children. That's not a good translation. Out of the city, the city of of Bethel. And mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them, not cussed at them, but pronounced a a judgment uh, upon them in the name and based uh, on the uh, prerogatives of God, cursed them in the name of the Lord, and there came forth two she-bears out of the wood, and tear forty and two children of them. Um, it's common for skeptics to rip certain statements of Scripture out of context and apart from any honest evaluation, and hold them up for ridicule and say things like, uh, does the Bible really say this, or... Uh, how can you be a thinking person and take the Bible seriously when it says that? And one good example of that, I was reading King James there, that I like to refer to is the inscription over the cross. So this is like everybody's favorite Bible contradiction, and it goes like this. Do you realize, I mean, Lisa, do you realize there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and they have four different inscriptions, Peg, over the cross of Jesus? And if they can't get that right, something as simple and objective and cut and dried as that, how can you possibly take them seriously about anything else? Now, trust me, 99% of people who say that kind of thing, Jan, have never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and they certainly have not honestly considered uh, what they say to see if there might be a, a common sense way to harmonize what you've got. What you have here is four accurate partial accounts of the inscription. Matthew says the inscription read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark says the inscription said that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Luke says it says this is the king of the Jews. And John's gospel has Jesus, the Nazarene king of the Jews. Now let me suggest if any of those said something like, this is George from Greece, the prince of the Gentiles, then we would have a problem. I think what you've got are accurate partial accounts. And you don't have to know Greek or Hebrew to do that. In our passage today about little children being mauled by bears because uh, a prophet couldn't take some good-natured ribbing, uh, is the way this thing is spun. And it sounds kind of scary, Jason, that uh, you've got this prophet of God, a preacher, as it were, who can't even take a joke. So this morning we're going to look very closely at this passage and uh, we're going to see that even though it's held up by some as kind of the Bible condoning cruel and unusual punishment toward kindergarten kids, that's not what's being said here. 
Um, that's fake news. We say that's not true. Uh, but beyond that, just looking at what the text actually says, uh, I want us to emphasize when you bump into a tough passage, you got to do some tough thinking. But if you look at the passage in context, uh, there's generally a pretty obvious way to understand it. Okay. Before we dive into this interesting and somewhat controversial passage, let's uh, pray for those who protect and serve us, our peace officers, and boy, you think of Pastor Dennis's uh, testimony, you know, arrested, imprisoned, and how he's tight with a guy who helped arrest him. You know, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it? Called the grace of God there, folks. God's in the people-changing business. He can use all kinds of flawed, raw material, human material, to do some great things. So we'll pray for those folks and our peace officers, our firefighters, our active military. And uh, Danny, if you would pray for us in that direction. Also pray for the teacher and the teaching tonight, or this morning. Yeah, we're going to have to do a little bit of hard thinking this morning. And so let's warm up our capacity for abstract thought with some puns with punch. At least, you know, we can hope. When a freshman, a freshman, when a friend, I'm all wet. You've got to remember that. Right? When a Frenchman was asked if he played video games, he said, "We." Oui. <laughs> I, did, I didn't believe it when the highway department told me my dad was a thief. But when I got home, all the signs were there. <laughs> what should you do when chemists die? And I think Dale. And uh, Jack Smith are chemists. Bury them. <laughs> okay, we're going to be looking at an incident involving a prophet by the name of Elisha with an S-H. He's to be distinguished from an earlier prophet, but they overlapped in their ministries called Elijah. So you got Elijah, the first one who passed the baton to Elisha. It's very much like Moses and Joshua. You know, Moses was first, and uh, he passed the baton to Joshua. So I think that is a, a way to, to help out. But if I accidentally refer to the guy today as Elijah, I've misspoken. So just kind of change that. So we're going to look at Elisha. And an incident from the very earliest days of his ministry, after the departure of Elijah from this planet, and he's the new national prophet, God's spokesman, to the theocratic nation of the Old Testament, uh, Israel. We talked about them last week. And let's put this, since we walked through the Old Testament last week, let's put this specific incident we're going to look at very closely into its larger biblical context. And uh, let's do it like this. After centuries of slavery in Egypt, outside of the promised land, promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers, uh, the children of Israel, a million strong, were led by Moses under God's direction out of Egyptian slavery through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai where they received the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Covenant, that smaller uh, rectangle on top of the baseline rectangle we looked at last week. we got the Abrahamic baseline promises and then the Mosaic Covenant on top of that. And God made this people to be a theocratic nation. The Old Testament law was like a constitution for them. And after Moses died and the Exodus generation failed to take the land, Moses passed the baton to Joshua. 
he conquered the land in seven years. And that was followed by the very sad period called the period of the judges, where every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was no strong central government, no strong central focus on God. And that period lasted for 299 years. And at the end of the period of the judges, we had the beginning of the United Tribes of Israel, or the United Monarchy, where we have the first and only kings, first three kings and the only kings of all 12 tribes. First king was called Saul. Second king was King David. Third king was Solomon. So let's show you a diagram here, starting with Solomon, and show you where Elisha fit into that. Okay, wouldn't it be nice if we had, I don't, I don't know, maybe some notations there? Yeah, that's good. So Solomon reigned from 970 to 930. When he died, the kingdom split into two nations. They had a civil war, and the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, formed the nation of Israel. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, formed the nation of Judah. And you'll see Elijah and Elisha circled there in that timeline. In about 850 round numbers B.C., we've got this event taking place here where Elisha has followed the ministry of Elijah. And the Old Testament prophets, as we said last week, did not primarily predict the future, although they do some prophetic prophecy about the future, especially about Jesus. They mainly foretell God's truth as district attorney types, warning God's people of violations of the Mosaic Covenant, the Constitution he had given them, because he's told them, if you violate it long enough, I'll let bad things happen to you, including military invasion and conquest. So we're looking at Elisha, who is a very unique individual. The prophets and the apostles are very unique, all saved by grace through faith. How did people in the Old Testament get saved? Faith in the promised Messiah. They're looking forward. How do we get saved? Faith in the provided Messiah. So we're going to look at this prophet, early days of his ministry, and we're going to see the text, the trouble, and the truth, right? So let's start again with the text. And we read the King James before. Let's read that again, and then we'll look at the New American Standard Bible. Uh, probably the very, very popular English translations. Most of you probably have one or both of those at home or on your phone or something. And again, we've got a translation problem, and we'll talk about that. But let's just see what we've got here. Here's the data. And he, that is Elisha, went up from thence, from Jericho, under Bethel. And as he was going up, by the way, there came forth little children. Okay, Jamie, we're talking about little children. When I say, look at the little children over there, what do you think I'm talking about? 20-year-old kids? To me, they're little, but... Uh, now, no, I don't think you're, I don't see you as a little child. I think, I think kindergarten, first, second grade. That's what I'm thinking. You guys look like I just shot your dog. Is that a problem? I mean, I mean, that's what, that's what I think of when I think little children. Okay. So and I think most people probably get somewhere in that category. Okay. Uh, but he sees these little children, uh, coming out of the city of Bethel and they mocked this older gentleman who represents God, who's God's spokesman. And they said unto him, go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. It's significant what that means. We'll say in more in a minute. And he turned back and looked on them, and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Like, stop in the name of the law. Don't do that because you're, you know, I'm I'm representing God here, and you're putting your uh, safety at risk. And as soon as he says that, there came four two she-bears out of the wood. That was a collective noun at that point. And tear, T-A-R-E, 40 and two children of them. That's pretty rough stuff. 
Now you might say, well, that's 1611 English, so let's get a modern translation. Here's my personal favorite modern translation, but they didn't do such a good job this time. Then Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was going, young lads. Now, okay, Jamie, we're going to give you another chance. When you hear the, when you hear the phrase, young lads, what, what age bracket comes to your mind? Yeah, okay, somebody like Henry. Okay, how old are you, Henry? Fourteen. Okay. Fourteen. That's a good number. Okay. I can't remember it, but I'm sure it was a good time. Uh, <laughs> as, as Elijah, this brand new prophet of God, the starting his ministry, was going from Jericho to Bethel, young lads, 14-year-old kids, 12-year-old kids, maybe something like that, um, came out of the city and mocked him. And they said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he looked behind him and saw them. He cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. Okay, I think the text leads directly to the trouble. And the kind of questions people ask, both believers and unbelievers, and I think rightly so, they think of questions kind of like this. Wasn't Elijah a prophet? I mean, aren't you a preacher? Why are you acting angry about having to wait 30 minutes to check out at Walmart? You're a preacher, aren't you, Brad? Uh, just on Sundays and Wednesdays. Uh, no, I don't, you know, sometimes people will play the P card on you, you know, uh, when you're actually human, right? Uh, wasn't Elijah a prophet of God? Wasn't he a preacher? Shouldn't he be able to control his temper better? Or at least less violently? I mean, it's, it's one thing. Now, I, I know everybody thinks their grandkids are the best. Mine actually are, and I'm serious. Objectively, mine are the very best. Yours, yours are second, just so you'll know. But even those kids can get irritating at times, you know, but I've never cursed them in the name of the Lord. Uh, and by the way, Lisa hadn't heard this joke. Do you know why grandchildren and grandparents get along so well? They have a common enemy. <laughs> okay. So people think preachers should be nicer than that, and they probably should be. Uh, hey, don't little kids say the darndest things? If you've read the King James, you're thinking they're kindergartners. If you've read the American Standard, you're thinking maybe they're uh, Henry. And Henry's very advanced for 14, so you're not a very you're not representative at 14. You're you're way more advanced. So uh, shouldn't shouldn't we be you know kind of more flexible around kids that aren't adults yet and and aren't all that sophisticated in their thinking? Uh, now, granted, it's not polite to call attention to a preacher's baldness. But is it really a capital crime or a serious sin? I mean, come on. You've got to have a sense of humor, right? Um, and then finally, you know, people wonder, uh, why would the Lord be directly involved? It's one thing for the preacher to get upset and say something like that, but wouldn't God just ignore that or maybe come in a voice and say, hey, man, you've got to control yourself there, Elijah. You know, people are watching, you know, at the Walmart when you're checking out. Uh, why would the Lord be directly involved in this kind of child abuse? I mean, doesn't God love love kids, or at least love little children and young lads. So that's kind of the trouble. Now, before we look at the truth, or as we look at the truth maybe, let's look at the text. And I'm, I've got the New American Standard Bible, which I said is kind of my baseline Bible. It's my personal favorite. But it's not perfect. Um, and you go back to the original Hebrew. But let's kind of read and comment on the verses. Then he, Elisha, just... At the very beginning of his ministry, after 
Elijah has departed from this world. I know Steve knows that was a very unique situation. Uh, then he went up from there, from Jericho, uh, to Bethel. Uh, let's stop there. Go back to verse 11 of this chapter. Uh, I keep saying that Elijah, with a J, departed. I don't say he died, because he didn't die. There are two very unique situations in the Old Testament. A guy in Genesis by the name of Enoch, who's just taken to be with God without dying. And now we've got Elijah, who was taken to be with God without dying. Sounds a lot like something is going to happen to a whole generation of Christians at the beginning of the end times, which may be very near, namely the rapture of the church. But in 2 Kings 2.11, we read, Then it came about as they were going along, this is Elijah and Elisha, and talking, that there appeared a chariot of fire, which was the ultimate battle weapon at that time. God's not a wimp, okay? And God's justice isn't pretty, but it's always preceded by God's grace. A chariot of fire and horses of fire, uh, which separated the two of them, Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah went up, went up to heaven, the presence of God, by a whirlwind to heaven. Now, it's interesting. In the aftermath of that, some other people start a search power, a search party, because they knew there was a whirlwind. They assumed he got blown by a tornado somewhere. They wanted to find his body to bury it. But Elisha, the guy we're talking about in our passage today, saw that, knew it was a miracle, and he went up. So he's telling people, you, you didn't find the body because there isn't a body. He was taken up to be with God. And that helps you understand why the, not the kindergartners and not the 12-year-olds, but this violent youth gang of young toughs, and I say young as a 64-year-old man, these guys would have been 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, could have killed you with their bare hands. And they're making fun of what Elisha is saying about his his mentor, that he went up supernaturally. So they're saying to him, get out of here, get out of here, go, go up like your mentor did, as it were. But go back to verse 23. Then he, Elisha, not Elijah, Elijah was translated directly to heaven. He went up from there, Jericho, where he'd interacted with the city and blessed them, and he went to Bethel. Let's put that on a map. Right, so... Uh, this is a map. Remember the, the nation here has broken into two separate countries, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. So the uh, Israel in all caps there refers to the national entity, the Judah and the southern parts, uh, southern part, lower part of that uh, uh, map uh, is all caps Judah. That's the, the southern kingdom. But we're, we're going from Jericho there near the Jordan River to Bethel. What do you know about Bethel uh, in the... Uh, the northern kingdom. Well, we had, we had problems there. We had major theological problems. Go back to 1 Kings 12. Uh, yeah. 2 Kings 12. Now, remember what happens after Solomon dies? you got Saul, David, Solomon, united tribes. Then we have a split, right? And Solomon's son... Rehoboam initially has the reins of all 12 tribes, but he decides to be a tough guy and raise taxes. And really the issue was taxes. And so the 10 tribes said, we're out of here. You know, Solomon was tough enough. He took enough taxes. We don't want to do this anymore. And so the king of the new kingdom to the north, 
that opposed the one to the south, the more legitimate one where the temple was. His name was Jeroboam. So Jeroboam was the king of this new nation, like the confederacy seceded from the nation, uh, United States. This northern kingdom seceded from the nation, and Jeroboam was his first king. Now Jeroboam said in his heart, uh, the kingdom, my people, will return to the house of David because if my people go to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, where the southern kingdom is, which is where they're supposed to do that kind of thing, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, their legitimate ruler, even Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and they'll kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted, that is, King Jeroboam, who leads the northern tribes like the confederacy, had left the nation and started their own. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. Now, boy, that's a particularly bad choice, just so you'll know. I mean, right? Because you think of what the Exodus generation did. And he said to them, uh, to the nation, it's way too inconvenient for you to have to go to Jerusalem to worship just look at these gods. We'll put one in the north in Dan. We'll put the other in Bethel. So it'll be nice and convenient for you. Uh, these are your gods. You can worship the real God by looking at these golden calves. Verse 29, he sent one in Bethel and the other in Dan, which is to the far north. So go back to Second Kings 2. So we've got the new prophet in the northern kingdom. You see God's grace in even having prophets in the northern kingdom, right? Because they're very illegitimate. And they've started... Uh, to worship not where God said to worship at the central sanctuary temple. They've got their own set up, and they've made it more convenient. And there's also a guy on the screen that you'll never meet that talks to you. Now, that's something I'll say. That, that's not necessarily bad, right? But anyway, uh, so anyway, he's going from Jericho to Bethel. And let me show you what that looks like. Yeah, so we're going from Jericho to Bethel. Verse 23. And as he was going up, by the way, young lads came up, and taunted him. And that's what we need to talk about. And uh, when we get to specific content issues, I'll talk about that. But just trust me, and I'll validate this. These aren't kindergarten kids or 12-year-olds. These are young adults that are in a gang of probably around 50 people. And you've heard of the Crips and the Bloods. This would have been the 9th century B.C. edition of the Crips uh, in and around Bethel. This is a group of people that would kill you and beat you to death to get your stuff. And for them to be mocking God and God's prophet was a pretext and a preliminary to something much more violent that was about to happen. These aren't little kindergarten kids kiddingly saying something funny and silly. These are violent street thugs, and this is a major problem. Uh, He doesn't cuss at them, as I said, uh, after they say, go up, go up, do what you say Elijah did. Just go up to heaven and get out of here. We don't need you. We don't want you. In fact, we're going to beat you up and kill you. Uh, when he looked behind him, he saw them and he realized that he's got a problem. But he bravely cursed them in the name of the law, in the name of the Lord, actually. You know, he says, hey, you don't know what you're dealing with here. And as soon as he says that, and notice he doesn't call out fire from heaven, or, or nor does he say, God, send two bears out to kill these people. He just renounces what they're saying and puts them in God's hands. And as God's key person on the whole planet, in the whole universe, in a sense, in that one moment of time, he does a very unusual thing. Two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 of their number, which means this was a larger group than 42. Most of the commentaries, I don't know why, why they know that. Most, most of the commentaries, you know what they say, there's 50 of them. Now, how do we know that? We don't. 
But in other words, a large chunk, a large percentage of the total were were attacked and injured. It doesn't say killed, even though a lot of people assume that. And uh, even today, you can be. I don't want to ever be attacked by a bear, but uh, I've done a lot of study on this. And uh, according to what I've read, I worked with the once, once with a guy who said, "Well, everything I've read says X." And I thought, "What did you read? A pamphlet or something?" But I mean, uh, so that's dangerous. But everything I've read, Dale has said, if you're ever attacked by a bear, play dead. And apparently, once you stop struggling, they may toss you around a little bit. But I guess they just. They're not as interested if you're not moving around and screaming, so running. So you're you're not going to probably outrun them. But anyway, that's what happens there. So there's these these two bears come out and tear up a large percentage of this youth gang, and then Elijah was not deterred. He went to Bethel, he went to Mount Carmel, and then went to Samaria, which was his home base. Okay, let's look at the truth here. We've seen the text, the trouble, the truth, strategic context, specific content. This incident in its context takes place during the first days of Elisha's ministry, stepping into the very large ministry shoes of Elijah. Elijah may have been the most bombastic prophet of all time, and it's kind of like, who's going to take over for Billy Graham? It's not easy. Who's going to take over for Coach Snyder at Kansas State? Pardon the reference to some painful memories here. You know, it's tough, but... um, Anyway, it's not, it's not easy, okay? I could say who's gonna step in my shoes, but I won't say that, but anyway. And I, I do wear size 13, so if you say, uh, you know, somebody's got large shoes to step into, I do wear 13, which is an unlucky number. But Lisa, don't worry about that, cause it's bad luck to be superstitious. So. And Cade, I'm not superstitious, I'm just a little stitious. Okay, I'm not superstitious. Alright. So you got fresh meat. They haven't heard all the jokes yet. But um, so this this is very important. This is the first hundred days, literally, of this guy's ministry, and it's very important that everybody understand they need to respect who he is and what he's trying to do, even if they don't believe it. A lot of them don't believe it, but you can't just be mocking him and threatening him with violent attack. Now, as far as specific content, we saw the King James calls them little children. New American Standard, which was finished in the uh, 1975, fairly recently, in historical context, calls them young lads. But the so-called little children, young lads, weren't little children or young lads. Okay, that, That's the most important thing. And this is the most important issue, I think, here. But it's interesting, many of the translations just obscure this. I mean, the message paraphrase says, some little kids mocked him. Uh, the... Uh, MEV, the modern English version, says little boys. We've got little kids, little boys. The English standard version, small boys. And you're not supposed to refer to people by their height and make fun of them. You know, that's just not nice, but they didn't know that, I guess. Uh, slightly better is the NIV, the new international version, some boys. Uh, but the best rendering, and Ron, you're sitting down. You know, a lot of us have kind of uh, had issues at time with the Living Bible, which is actually a paraphrase. But they hit a home run here. They translate this, a gang of young men. And that's the best rendering. That's what is going on here. The little children, young lads, weren't little. They were teenagers, older teenagers, and possibly older, not a gaggle of kindergarten students, who were blasphemously threatening criminal assault, probably even murder on Elijah. And you might say, well, who says? Well, I'll show you who says. But thinking about gangs... 
I did a little research on the internet here, and this is from the uh, Oklahoma Task Force on Gangs, and it says, just so you'll know, the southwest region, they have three regions where they break down and analyze this, consists not only of Lawton, but also surrounding towns and areas of Altus, Duncan, Ardmore, Elk City, and Chickasha. There are an estimated estimated 4,000 gang members in our region. 4,000. That's a lot, right? The Southwest region has seven different gangs with numerous different sets. The seven gangs are Crips, Bloods, slash Piru, Piru? Anybody know? I don't want to mispronounce the name and get them mad. Um, Folk Nation, People's Nations, Serenos, Outlaw Motorcycle Bikers, which have their own acronym, OMG, and White Supremacists. In the Southwest region, gangs are not traditionally territorial or turf-based. Gangs will travel from city to city. Southwest region gang members are all about easy profit, guns, and drugs. Gang members are committing crimes from homicide to petty larceny. I think if we had a better translation, it would be a little easier to swallow the story as opposed to picturing little kids or young lads and kindergarten kids or second graders who, trying to be silly and funny, are talking about the reflection off of the guy's head. And while some of us take that very personally, it's not... Uh, James, can you relate to that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. For years, I thought James had a halo, and then I realized it was just the light bouncing off his head. So He's, he's that good. He's that good. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, so these aren't kindergarten kids. Now, Brad, you know, who, who are you to say that? Well, let me give you, let me cite some sources, some legit sources. The NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, peer-reviewed, written by several PhDs. The Hebrew term used here can refer to young children, but it can also refer to members of the younger generation, basically people 40 years of age and younger. The same Hebrew word that the King James translates little children, refers to uh, King Rehoboam. He's the guy that decided it would be a good idea to build golden calves in Bethel and Dan. Uh, after some really good advice from kindergarten kids, no, from young guys in their 30s that he promoted the cabinet post. In Genesis 41.12, Joseph, coat of many colors, who's now in Egypt and ascending as the prime minister, He's referred to by this term that the King James translates little children. The New American Standard translates young lads. When he's 39 years old, so especially 40 years or younger in the context has to help you figure it out. The MacArthur Study Bible says these are not children but infidels and idolatrous young men in their late teens or 20s. So the key issue with this, I think, is just a poor English translation and I've said this, like John 3.16 is a good example of this. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Everybody who studies Greek knows monogenes doesn't mean only begotten. It means only one of its kind, unique. But because the King James, which has been so influential, translated it only begotten, there's a tendency to go with that tradition and let the preachers and theologians explain it to the, to the uh, lay people, you know? And I think the King James may have been very influential in these translators kind of uh, keeping the theme of young children and not being as specific as they should have been here, that these people were uh, were uh, young toughs, you might say. They were not uh, little kids. So, yeah, the, uh, the, the little children, young lads were not little children, young lads. The second specific 
context issue I want to talk about is that verbal insults like this were serious business against elders in the ancient Near East generally, and especially against prophets of God specifically. The New International Encyclopedia of Biblical Difficulties says, this incident of these gang members taunting the prophet was far more serious than a mild personal offense by little boys. It was a situation of serious danger similar to that of being cursed out by a large group of gang members in the inner city today, which means they're, you know, generating enough heat and a passion to motivate these people to fall on you, mug you, and kill you, and steal your stuff. So that's what's happening. They're kind of cussing at him in a, as a pretext and as a preliminary before they're going to beat him up and kill him, or leave him for dead at least. These hoodlums moving in a group of 50 or so, there's that number, everybody likes the number 50, and it's probably about right, were ready to mock a well-known man of God, so there's no telling what violence they might have inflicted on the citizens of Bethel if they had continued on their riotous course. I tell you, somebody, there's a large group of people that were very happy when they found out these bears came out and took out a lot of these young toughs. Everybody within a 50-mile radius, all the law-abiding people. You think about all the folks that are forced because of economics to live in the inner city of Baltimore or uh, St. Louis or L.A. or Dallas or Oklahoma City. The vast majority of those people are law-abiding. They get preyed on by these predators, these violent predators, and now we're telling the police you can't stop and frisk them because he might look like a, a racist. And you get more and more minorities killed by their own people because you let the she-bears roam at will, and it's not a good thing. So the point is, these aren't little kids being silly, but but thugs cursing him as a prelude to assault him and probably kill him. And then the bear attack, while very unique and very violent, I'm sure, was not necessarily fatal. The text doesn't say he killed 42. It just says he tore uh, and I don't want to be tore by a bear today either if I can avoid it, but this may have been uh, less um, fatal as than what many people just assume, although I'm going to read a source that assumes that the 42 were killed. Uh, but for, for sure, this attack would have confirmed Elijah's status as God's representative and would have been a big deterrent on those who would want to kind of taunt him in the future. New International Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties again says, Perhaps it was for this reason that God saw fit to put 42 of them to death. Now, that's an assumption. The text doesn't say that, but I'm just telling you what that source said. The text isn't that specific. But to at least to punish them in this spectacular fashion, and the, the, the source there, the encyclopedia says, as a parenthesis, there's no evidence that Elisha himself, in imposing that curse, prayed for this specific mode of punishment. He wasn't expecting bears to do it. Uh, but God does it to strike terror into these and other youth gangs that were infesting the city and make them realize that neither the Lord himself nor any of his prophets were to be treated with contempt. And certainly from that time on, the whole Israelite community became convinced Elijah, Elisha, who had to follow Elijah and his shadow for a while, was a true prophet that he bore an authoritative word from God. Even the ungodly king Jehoram, Son of Ahab, who was a very bad king, treated Elisha with great deference and respect after this, and I guess they probably did. I think for sure this broke the back of that one particular youth gang. So, take this to heart. We suggested uh, the title, One Bald Man, 42 Boys, and Two Bears. Uh, James uh, and I have 
uh, decide we prefer two good reasons to be nice to bald preachers. <laughs> yeah. I know how to turn that off, but I'm not going to. Uh, but I will in a minute. Uh, that was a dilemma. I heard it go off, and I'm half-dressed over there, and I'm thinking, should I, put my, should I put my robe on and walk out and turn it off, or should I just let it go? So it's only fair, since you guys had to compete with it, James, that I will compete with it also. But, uh, yeah, just realize when you read this or hear people cite it uh, as a problem, just realize we're not talking about child abuse here. This is a description of God's protection of his spokesman, Elisha, in the face of insulting, blasphemous, criminal assault. Look at this. This may be the last time I read from the Living Bible, but I actually did a well of a good job here. From Jericho, he went to Bethel, that is Elisha. As he was walking along the road, a gang of young men. That's what it is. Oh, now I get it. These people are bad banditos, right? From the city began mocking and making fun of him because of his bald head. He turned around and cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two female bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of them. They needed extensive stitching, probably, at the urgent med clinic in Bethel, but doesn't necessarily say they were, were, were killed there. So, bottom line, this is a tough passage of Scripture. Uh, tough passages demand the tough word of careful interpretation and application, and I just kind of gave you the short version of that, but uh, trust me, there, there's, there, there are always good answers to some of these more difficult passages. And, you know, James has a lot of training, and he has a calling to do that, and I've got some training and a calling to do that. So that's one reason we're around here, to help you understand things like that that you might not understand. Now, this is one snapshot in the big Old Testament story we walked through last time. And the Old Testament is all about the promise that God gave to send a Savior who would come as a lamb to die for our sins and come back later as a lion to justify and to put down, justify his purposes and put down evil forever. And that Old Testament anticipates, and as New Testament Christians, we celebrate the risen Christ. But uh, the empty tomb is important for us in primarily because it validates the, the power of God over sin and death. On the cross, hanging between heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus died for everything that could keep Julie Demerson out of heaven or Wayne Hedrick uh, out of heaven or Brad McCoy out of heaven. Uh, and he finishes the work of that payment of that debt and says, it is finished, mission accomplished. Then he is resurrected three days later and no other religious leader said he was going to pay for your sin debt and come back alive again. And he said it and it happened. And so the risen Christ, who the Old Testament anticipates, is the issue and issuer of eternal life. So that's our invitation to you today. If you've not trusted Christ, I don't know if you've been baptized, joined a church, signed a card, walked an aisle. Have you trusted Jesus Christ alone as your Savior? Uh, Father, I'm a sinner. I break my own standards at my worst at Walmart, much less yours. By the way, nobody called me down recently at Walmart. That was a hypothetical illustration, okay? But I'm sure if some people had watched me at the wrong time at Walmart and seen me being frustrated at a 30-minute wait after I found something I needed in two minutes, you know. Uh, but see, I'm too, I'm too thrifty to go to the convenience store to buy milk because I would rather waste 30 minutes of my life I'll never get back in the line at Walmart than to save 30 minutes and pay another 75 cents for milk. I'm not doing that, okay? Just so you'll know. 
But, uh, yeah, you know, a little child can do this, and Jesus uses a little child as kind of the poster boy, poster girl, for saving faith. From the depth of your heart, you say, Lord Jesus, I've broken the rules. I can't fix it. I need a Savior. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. I trust him as my Savior. And you can't even do that unless God's doing unbelievable things behind, around you, and in you. And when that happens, you not only get a get out of hell free card, you get a whole new capacity to love and respond to your Savior as your Lord. So that's our invitation. And I hope that was helpful to, uh, hope that study was helpful to you in Second Kings. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you. You've spoken in your word. You have not stuttered. The main things are plain, clear things. They get repeated a lot. And some of these other incidents that come up are important. But with close examination, we can just about always figure out exactly what's going on here. And quite often the hype uh, is fake news, as it is on a passage like this one, even though some very legitimate translations don't help us very much here. Uh, thank you for each one who is here. Thank you for the blessing of uh, baptizing Abby today and studying the Word and worshiping together. And now I pray you'd be glorified as we go in the second hour and the rest of the day. Uh, we pray particularly for our elders' deacons meeting tonight. Lord, give us your direction and your wisdom as we uh, seek and submit to your will for our church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.